Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. My name's Sarah. How are you doing today, Sarah? I feel like I got a little bit of a frog in my throat, but that's okay, because you're doing most of the talking. That's true, at least for this first bit. Yes. I had this moment where I was reciting our customary intro, and I thought to myself, is this really a good idea, this thing that we're doing, every horror movie ever made in chronological order? The magnitude of the task suddenly, suddenly came upon me, all of a sudden. (laughs) Well, as G. Willow Wilson says, there may not always be a way out, but there is a way through. I'm sorry, I, I, I don't mean to get us off on the wrong foot. I love doing this show with you. So what are we watching today? We are watching a little-known, seldom-seen film, but it's our first movie of 1933. It is called The Vampire Bat. Do you think it's about vampires? Maybe. At the very least, it's about bats. The Vampire Bat is a... Uh, I guess you could call it an indie movie. It's, it's not a major studio film. That being said, it's not like that means that it's somehow trying to buck the system or (laughs) ignore trends. I'll put it this way. Hollywood has never prioritized originality. Okay. You know, you hear these complaints these days about like, oh, movies are all just sequels or remakes or reboots or adaptations and there's no original movies anymore. But those complaints have antecedents going back to the very beginning of the Hollywood film industry. A few episodes ago, we watched Warner Brothers' entry into the horror genre, Dr. X. Now, that film had been highly successful at the box office, so a follow-up was put into production immediately afterwards with much of the same cast and crew, and also an eye towards getting Warner Brothers out of their Technicolor contract, and that film is called Mystery of the Wax Museum. So we are not watching uh, Mystery of the Wax Museum today. Um, Not today. No, but eventually. Why are we talking about this movie now? (laughs) Let me tell you, Sarah. So it, it might help to give a little bit of background to listeners, if they're not familiar, with kind of the way Hollywood worked in the 30s. In the 1930s, Hollywood was defined by a division between what were known as the major studios and the minors. There were eight major studios in 1933, MGM, Paramount, Warner Brothers, Universal, uh, as well as sort of the smaller majors, which were RKO, United Artists, Columbia Pictures, and the Fox Film Corporation. Okay. If you weren't a major studio, you were a minor, an independent operator. Your company didn't have the same kind of control of distribution and exhibition chains that the majors did, so you kind of had to rely on making films that were filler programming for theaters, you know, to fill in slots that maybe weren't being filled by major chain programming, Uh, and you were mostly consigned to making low-budget B-movies in genre fare, like westerns, or adventure films, or comedy, detective fiction, uh, and of course, horror. How did the differentiation between major and minor get figured out? Like, is it just this control over distribution? Yeah, generally speaking, major studios owned their own theater chains and distribution lines, 
Um, major studios often, in, at least in the 30s, produced their own films as well, which doesn't really happen anymore. Like nowadays, there's usually a production company that feeds to a studio to distribute, and then movie theaters exhibit. But in the 1930s, Hollywood had what was called vertical integration, where the same company was producing, distributing, and exhibiting the films. So Paramount, for example, owned the famous players chain of theaters. So a minor studio might only produce or distribute, but not exhibit. You know, only control maybe one to two of the three. But the key distinction is they didn't own their own theater chains. They couldn't do things like block booking, which the major studios would do. You know, oh, you want Gone with the Wind? You have to take these five other crappy movies. Or, you know, they couldn't force theaters to show their movies, so they mostly relied on getting shown in either independently owned theaters or in theaters that needed to fill time in the day with show times and that didn't have major studio uh, programming to fill those times. Now, minor studios might have distribution, or they might be piggybacking on the distribution of majors, but the main distinction is they didn't have exhibition, for sure. So we've already seen one movie on the list so far from one of these B-movie minor studio independent operators. That was Aster Pictures' The Monster Walks. Which did not fare very well on the list. No. (laughs) (laughs) These lesser studios, lesser producers, were dubbed Poverty Row Studios in the slang of the industry at the time. So these studios all go and they all work on Poverty Row. Like, that's what they were called. That that means that you're not going to make enough money to be out of poverty? Like, is that the joke? No, it just means, yeah, it just means that they're cheap. They're okay. cheap studios without a lot of money. Okay. So they're Poverty Row. Back then, just as now, really, one of the tried and true strategies of these minor studios was to produce cheap knockoff productions of successful projects from the majors. So... Listeners to the podcast may be familiar with the mockbuster strategy in modern times that's most famous from companies like The Asylum, where movies similar to current hits are produced cheaply, and they're sort of banking on profiting from customer confusion. Transmorphers versus Transformers. Yes. The other one I really remember is like when Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds came out, The Asylum did, H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds... Because it's an old book and just in public domain. Like, this is how the vampire bat happened. (laughs) Okay. Majestic Pictures was a struggling Poverty Row studio in 1933, but its small size meant that it had low overhead costs. In some ways, it was actually doing financially better than some of the majors that were getting hit with the Great Depression. Majestic decided that it was going to cash in on the very significant pre-release publicity for Mystery of the Wax Museum. That film had already been shot, but was going through post-production, you know, to do all the Technicolor and and everything and, and, you know, do the editing and all that kind of stuff. So Majestic hired its stars, Lionel Atwell and Faye Ray, to shoot a quick horror film to beat Wax Museum to theaters. Okay. So, like, Wax Museum has shot, it just hasn't come out yet, and Majestic wants to, like, you know, make this whole movie in that time before Wax Museum comes out. So to direct the film, uh, Majestic hired Frank Strayer, the B-movie director who had helmed The Monster Walks a year earlier. Now, I don't think we were very impressed with Frank Strayer's direction in The Monster Walks. No. I don't think there was really a lot of direction... 
to even speak of, really, yeah. in that movie, as I recall. It's pretty basic. So in between that and this, Strayer had directed nine films. Oh my gosh. All of them for Poverty Row Studios, with the exception of two Spanish-language pictures he did for the Fox Film Corporation. The writer for Vampire Bat was Edward Lowe Jr., who had penned the screenplay for Lon Chaney's version of Hunchback of Notre Dame. So that was sort of his major credit before this, but he had been working, you know, steady on other stuff in between. Fay Ray and Lionel Atwell had just completed shooting on Wax Museum, which they shot right after Dr. X when they came into this picture. However, between Dr. X and Wax Museum, Fay Ray had additionally shot the film The Most Dangerous Game, as well with the same producers, King Kong. Mm. Now, King Kong would be the movie that would make her a major star, but it had yet to be released at this point, owing to the very extensive and time-consuming nature of its special effects. So, we're seeing Fay Ray after she shot King Kong, but before anyone has seen King Kong. Okay. Ray and Atwell won't be the only familiar faces in the cast. Majestic kind of went all out in this gambit to imitate these larger budget horror flicks. So Melvin Douglas, the hero of The Old Dark House, was brought in to star as well. This being actually his very next picture. Oh. Additionally, supporting players in the cast include Dwight Fry, Lionel Belmore, and Maud Eburn. Fry, of course, had played Renfield in Dracula quite brilliantly, and followed that up with the archetypal hunchback assistant Fritz in Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. He had unfortunately been typecast as a kind of wide-eyed madman following these performances. He was called the man with the thousand-watt stare. I guess that is kind of the risk when you play a role so, so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, he played Wilmer Cook in the original 1931 version of the Maltese Falcon. And then Fry had been in very minor roles in The Black Camel, Attorney for the Defense, and A Strange Adventure before the vampire bat returned him to the horror genre. Okay. Lionel Belmore, he had played the village burgomaster in Frankenstein, which is a role he's essentially reprising in this film. He's, he's basically the exact same thing. Uh, and then Maud Eburn will be recognizable as having played the easily frightened maid in The Bat Whispers. Mm. Uh, so she's also in this. As part of the plan to pass the film off as a higher budget affair than it really was, Majestic sort of copied from White Zombie's playbook and rented sets from Universal to shoot on. Uh, specifically, the village backlot from Frankenstein and the interiors from The Old Dark House. Okay. Uh, and it's worth stating that one of the producers on The Vampire Bat, Phil Goldstone, had also assisted the Halperins in producing White Zombie. As it turns out, the gambit actually paid off for Majestic Pictures. Uh, the Vampire Bat arrived in theaters on January 10th, 1933, a month before Wax Museum, and it actually did quite well at the box office. Okay. Uh, it must be assumed that at least part of this was from theatergoers asking for, like, you know, a ticket to that new Lionel Atwell and Fay Ray horror show and ending up at the wrong movie. Um, but <laughs> critics also did review the picture quite well, so it must have some merits on its own. And this is not in Technicolor. Correct. This is just a cheap black and white movie. Okay. Yeah. So as soon as the film started rolling, audiences would be like, wait a minute. Yeah. 
I'm not in the right place. <laughs> Being like an indie movie from almost, what, 80 years ago? Mm-hmm. The Vampire Bat is in public domain. It's available restored by UCLA Film Archive on Blu-ray and DVD from The Film Detective. And it's also on YouTube and therefore on the Scream Scene playlist. If you would like to see that playlist, you can check out our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Until then, you will hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be right back after watching The Vampire Bat from 1933. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if this is any good. I'm excited, though. There's a lot of good actors in it, so hopefully they don't embarrass themselves. Hopefully. We will see you on the other side, Creatures of the Night. Scream scene. We just finished watching The Vampire Bat from 1933. Ben, it was pretty good. It was better than I was expecting, that's for sure. Like, yeah. it was better than The Monster Walks, and yes. I think it had some interesting ideas in it, some interesting takes on some of the standard cliches. Yeah. Like, it definitely stumbles, and it's not going in our top ten, but, like, I think you said it best with. It was better than you thought it was going to be. Yeah, I think mostly it was more interesting for me than good. Mm. Like, I think it would be a good movie if it wasn't so dull and focused on comic relief for most of its running time. Ooh, I didn't find it dull. Uh, I did for for chunks of it. Um, I think it could have, the narrative could have been arranged better than it was. Oh, definitely. But uh, speaking of the narrative, uh, we should tell people what the narrative was. Go for it. Okay. So we are in a German-ish village in a non-distinct time and place. What year is it? Yeah, very similar to the Universal Studios method. And I, I feel like, you know, you want that German Eastern European flavor, but you don't want to like maybe directly address what's going on in Germany in the real world. I feel Um, like they said it in Germany because they had the sets. Oh, for sure. And also, like, you can do the superstitious villagers thing, which they definitely lean into quite heavily. So it's the vaguely German village of Kainschloss in an indeterminate time. Mm -hmm. And a series of murders have been taking place. Uh, Six so far. They are... Super vampire style, uh, in the sense that, like, giant bats are all around the village. They're average-sized. They're said to be giant in dialogue. Okay. Uh, giant bats are all around the village. Uh, it's freaking everybody out. And these victims are being found with two puncture wounds in their jugular veins and drained of all blood. So, you know, the village elders, including the Burgermeister, are like, Hey, this is definitely a vampire. Meanwhile, the sort of town inspector, detective policeman... Mm-hmm. Inspector Carl Breitschneider. He is not convinced because vampires are a load of hooey. <laughs> but, you know, he's trying to find who this murderer is anyways. Also in this story are um, <laughs> Dr. Otto von Neiman, who lives in a castle. 
outside the village because he's a scientist. And I guess that's just how villages work in the Hollywood version of Germany. There's a small village and then a scientist with a castle. That's just how it is. I mean, that trope... This is a side note, but that trope still kind of exists in the sense of, like, the scientist who's doing, like, science things lives outside of town in this large building. Yeah, it's just like... I'm just thinking Stranger Things because, like, we just finished watching the second season. Sure, I'm just saying, like, it's interesting that, you know, we've gotten to a point in the horror genre now where... These tropes have developed in our standard. Yeah, exactly. Like, this movie has cliches to rely upon, right? Like in movies like Frankenstein or Dracula, there are things that seem like cliche to a modern audience, and you have to remember, well, no, this invented the cliche. By the time of this movie, these are cliches. Yeah. So Dr. Otto von Neiman, who is played by Lionel Atwell. Neiman. He lives in this castle and does science. Um, (laughs) Really, like, no, he does science. uh, And he is a doctor. That's... As specific as we're getting. And his assistant is Faye Ray's character, Ruth. And Ruth lives in this castle with her aunt, Gussie, who is played by Maud Eburn. And Aunt Gussie's whole deal is she's like a super hypochondriac and is always thinking she's down with something. And that's hilarious. 25% of the runtime is just her doing comic relief stuff. But anyways, so Carl Breachneider, which is Melvin Douglas's character, he is romantically linked with Ruth, and he's trying to get Dr. Von Neiman to help him solve the riddle of these murders. A couple more people in the village are killed, and their murders are linked to this guy, Herman, who is Dwight Fry's character. Herman's whole deal is that he's basically suffering from some kind of mental illness. Uh, He's not all there, and kind of has a very childlike way of interacting with the world. He's keeping the bats that are hanging around town as pets. He's a little off. So, of course, the whole village is like, ah, a weirdo who likes bats. Clearly, he's the vampire. Mm -hmm. And Breach Schneider's like, well, maybe we shouldn't, like, become an angry mob and go after this guy for no reason just yet. Let, you know, give me some time to try and solve these murders. But... That's not really what happens. The village does arrange a angry mob. They do go after Herman, and rather than be captured, Herman, who's who's very confused about everything, he sort of jumps into a chasm in a cave and kills himself. Uh, and then, just for good measure, the villagers stake him. While all that's been happening, Dr. Von Neiman's housekeeper, Georgiana, uh, comes to him and is like, Hey, Emil, who is also one of the servant staff who is played by Robert Frazier, by the way, one of the two main villains from White Zombie. Uh, And we were kind of surprised to see him pop up in the movie. Mm -hmm. Anyways, Georgiana goes to Dr. Von Neiman and says, hey, Emil's acting super suspicious. There's, you know, mud on his shoes after the murders, and he has one of the victim's crucifixes in his room. Isn't this odd? And Dr. Von Neiman's like, yeah, shut up about it. We'll tell everyone later after I have a chance to talk to Emil directly. But until then, like, go to your room and shut up. So she does, and she goes to bed, and that's when we see Emile, you know, stalk into her room all vampire style. We're like, ha-ha! So it wasn't Herman, it was Emile. And, it, like, it was pretty obvious it wasn't Herman, too. Like, it was pretty obviously just a case of, like, the village paranoia targeting this, like, poor weirdo. But then we get, like, as Emile is stalking into Georgiana's room, these cuts to Dr. Von Neiman, like, 
staring down the barrel of the camera, giving, like, instructions, as if he's sort of telepathically controlling Emil. And so Emil takes Georgiana, and actually, instead of, like, biting her on the throat like a vampire, gets her down to Dr. von Neiman's laboratory. And they actually, like, puncture her neck with, like, some sort of device, and drain the blood out of her mechanically. And also in one part of this laboratory, there's like a big water aquarium with a big pulsating um, egg sponge, like an egg-shaped sponge. I thought it was a neat effect. So, um... Like, you see it pulsating, and like there's some air bubbles coming from it when it breathes. Right. I don't know. I thought it was cool. So they've drained the blood out of her, <laughs> and then they put her back in her bed, leaving her for Aunt Gussie to find. And she, of course, freaks out. That's like, oh my god, a murder in this very house. And uh, so Carl shows up and is like, what? Like, the murderer's been here. Like, I'm going to search the whole house and figure out, like, exactly what the deal is. It can't be Herman because he's dead by this point. Although there is, like, a stretch of time where Dr. Von Neiman's like, yes, it's definitely Herman. All the signs point to Herman. And that's when the Burgermeister shows up to say, like, hey, so we just killed Herman, so there shouldn't be any more murders. It's like, oh... Actually, there was one while you were gone. And that's when the Burgermeister's like, oh, maybe it was wrong of us to turn into a mob and persecute someone to death. We'll give him a nice burial, at least. Dr. Von Neiman's like, well, okay, what a, what a mystery. Uh, here, Carl, take some sleeping pills and just try to get a good night's rest. There's no sense in searching my whole house for clues, because whatever clues are here, they'll, they'll still be here in the morning. Like, whatever. <laughs> Carl goes back to his apartment. I guess. Mm-hmm. And at night, after he goes to sleep, Dr. Von Neiman telepathically sets Emil upon him, who, like, climbs up the side of the building and, like, comes in and is all wearing the black cape and being spooky Dracula style, uh, and gets Carl. While Dr. Von Neiman is delivering these telepathic instructions, like, Ruth comes into the room to just be like, you know, hey, what's up? And uh, <laughs> sees this. And is like, oh, this isn't good. And Dr. Von Neiman sees that she has seen him. And so now it's time for Ruth, who's done really nothing in the plot of this movie up to this point, to become a damsel in distress. Uh, So Neiman ties her up and takes her to the laboratory and explains that he was the one who killed all these people and drained them of blood. And why? Well, it's because he's found the secret to creating artificial life in his lab, but it needs to be like fed fresh blood. And like, who cares if a bunch of people have died? I've managed to create life. So now this movie is like a version of Dracula that twist ending is actually Frankenstein. (laughs) At will does it well, though. So he's got Ruth tied up in the lab, and he's awaiting a meal to come back with Carl, uh, and they walk into the laboratory and plunk the guy down on the operating table, uh, and, you know, Dr. Von Neumann's like, good, time for evil. And that's when he sort of lifts up the sheet, and it's Emil on the operating table, and dressed in the black Dracula cloak is actually Carl with a gun. (laughs) (laughs) It was great. Uh, So there's a, a laboratory fight... At one point, Emil gets up and is all like, actually, like, I'm going to fight you, Dr. Newman, Dr. Neiman, because <laughs> I guess Emil didn't like that he was being telepathically controlled. There's not really enough here, but, you know, you get that sense. So they are fighting so that Carl can get Ruth out of there safely. And then once they're out of the lab, you hear two gunshots and Carl kind of turns around and looks in and they're both dead. And it's like, ugh. What a grisly situation. And then Aunt Gussie comes downstairs to, like, complain about having diarrhea. Ha 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 ha. The end. So when you put it like that, it doesn't sound like it's a good movie. <laughs> but 
No, it's like an alright movie. It is better than what I expected. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I said, I think it's interesting. I think the way it melds Frankenstein and Dracula together with this story of, like, a scientist committing vampire-style murders to gain blood to feed this artificial life he's created. It's like a new twist on old themes, and it does serve to make the movie memorable, even though a lot of it are these recycled cliches. The way it's putting those cliches together is interesting. And I think the other reason why it's kind of interesting is... Not for all of them, but for some of those tropes, they're using those tropes to mislead the audience. Yes. And tell a different story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, absolutely. Like, I don't know about you, but I never suspected Herman. Not for a second. It's not like Dwight Fry plays it as if he's villainous. He's playing Herman as written. But I think if you were an audience member of the time, you see Dwight Fry. He's doing his regular Dwight Fry shtick oh, it's a vampire thing, you'd think he would be the vampire. Yeah, I think that it feels like the movie intends for you to be convinced by the fake-out. Yeah. Um, one of my problems with the movie is that I wasn't, and so the thing about the movie's narrative structure is it's kind of divided in half. There's the first half of the movie where it's really trying hard to get us to think Herman's the vampire, and then once Herman's dead... It's immediately kind of after that that the movie shows us that actually it's Dr. Von Neiman and Emil. So it's kind of these two separate halves of the movie. And because I never really believed that Herman was the vampire, that first half was just me kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. That was one problem with it. That's why I said it was dull, was because during that section, which also has like a lot of Aunt Gussie in it, I was just kind of waiting for the twist that I knew was coming. I would agree with that. I think for me the reason why I didn't find it dull in the same way is because I was really intrigued that they were doing this whole village hysteria paranoia thing. It seemed very aware of itself, kind of stoking the flames of hysteria. Mm -hmm. uh, and I thought that was such an interesting take on what was basically historical cases of vampirism. Yes, I did really appreciate that, like, this movie really does show you exactly what you just said, that, that real-world cases of vampirism were mostly paranoia and superstition in small villages, the way a series of unexplained deaths basically would lead to a single, odd, or unpopular individual in the village being singled out as a scapegoat for mob justice. Yeah. What I think I would have preferred is to have gotten a bit more of a sense of what was really going on a little earlier and intercut those two story elements for some dramatic tension or irony mm -hmm. rather than this kind of like feeling the movie has of like part A, part B of like here's the story about mob hysteria and then here's the story about a mad scientist. See, the reason why I'm kind of okay with that is because in the midst of the movie trying to convince the audience that Herman is the vampire, it's also convincing you that Dr. Neiman is an authority to be trusted. Yes. And so then when he is suddenly not, it makes the twist still have impact. Okay. Or like have more impact. I see what you're saying. On the other hand, one of my frustrations with this movie is the way that Lionel Atwill's performance as Neiman is 100% different before and after the twist. Mm. In the sense that there's a lot of story elements before we know the truth, 
where Neiman is helping Carl with his investigation and kind of very subtly pushing him towards the idea of maybe vampires are real. And it is very subtle. It's like, well, I've got some books and like, here's some old scientists saying like, maybe there's something behind this. And like, it's the only thing that really fits the facts. And like you said, you kind of trust Neiman to be, you assume he's the Van Helsing figure in this story, right? What bothered me was the way that after we know the truth, similar scenes of Dr. Neiman saying like, well, I think it is Herman because like of all of these reasons and blah, Atwell's playing the character like very obviously as the bad guy trying to mislead the hero. He's like, you know, darting his eyes around and like kind of looking to the side and like making these kind of gestures. And it was something that frustrated me that there are no clues before the twist to really help an audience member maybe figure it out beforehand. Mm -hmm. And then after we know the twist, the character turns completely into crazy mad scientist you know how how did you remain undetected so long there isn't enough consistency in his performance and i i don't mm. blame lionel atwell for that i blame the director because that feels to me like a director saying like okay the audience knows you're the bad guy now so let's like when you tell him hey i think it's herman like shift your eyes around like oh but it's really me you know like yeah it just feels a little hacky I do agree that, like, I wish there was a little bit more balance between the two halves Mm -hmm. of this movie, mainly so we could get a little bit more explanation of what the heck is going on with Emil. Yeah, yeah. Once we get the reveal, as much as the idea of this scientist, like, imitating a vampire to, you know, kind of cloak his activities because he knows the village is full of these superstitious people, Mm -hmm. you know, and he's doing it for this weird Frankenstein artificial life thing, the exact, like... Method. Yeah, and, like, the how and the why and the what is, like, very unclear. (laughs) Well, the why is clear. Science. Science. And, like, then the what is, like, (laughs) it's so weird, this, like, thing he's got growing, this chia pet in an aquarium he's got going here. (laughs) And, yeah, and the how, like, there's no real explanation for the way that he can telepathically control a meal. I was assuming that it was something to do with hypnotism. Yeah. Because of the way that Emil doesn't seem to have, at least in his performance, doesn't seem to have much awareness of his surroundings when he's being controlled. And then that would also explain why he turns against Dr. Neiman at the end. Because he's like, I'm no longer going to be your pup. He doesn't say this, but <laughs> it feels like I'll no longer be your puppet. And that's why he kills the doctor and then himself. Right. The problem is, is that you can assume it's hypnosis and it feels like he no longer wants to be his puppet, but the movie doesn't fucking say it. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Like, hypnosis is enough of a cliché Like, you talked earlier about how you enjoyed the way this movie kind of subverted cliches, but this cliche is just, like, it feels like the movie's taking advantage of it. Like, all of these, not all of them, but a lot of these horror movies have been reliant on characters with hypnotic power. So it feels like the movie just felt it could throw that in there and we'd just accept it because it was a trope. But, like, if the movie's whole deal is to explain vampirism with a scientific real-world explanation, to give the scientist telepathy <laughs> like kind of goes against that, right? Definitely. And so it, they needed something to say, like, that he was hypnotizing this guy and this guy did resent it. And I, I totally agree with you. Like, my feeling is if they had given you the twist a bit earlier while Herman was still alive, and like I said, intercut a bit for some dramatic irony, you know, not for the whole movie, but maybe just overlap them a little in the middle, we maybe could have also gotten a bit more explanation with Emil and what his deal is and why he's the guy the doctor chose to do this and and, and what they're after and what the 
deal is with any of this. And I think it's also kind of a disservice to Robert Fraser. He's very forgettable in this movie. Yeah. But we talked so much about how he was able to hold his own against Lugosi and White Zombie. Mm-hmm. And here, I mean, like, he doesn't get much to do because he's barely on screen. And when he is on screen, he's in this controlled state until yeah. the very end. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, it was such a surprise to kind of see him in it because I, you know, in the intro I had said, oh, we're going to see all these familiar faces, and I didn't even realize Robert Fraser was in this. And then he popped up, and it was like, oh, cool, someone, you know, more who we know. This is like a, a jamboree of <laughs> actors from previous horror movies. And then, yeah, the movie doesn't do very well by him. It's it's worth stating that between White Zombie and this, he was the villain in a kind of darkest Africa safari movie called The Three Musketeers. What? Yeah, it has nothing to do with the book. It's just, like, three (laughs) safari adventurers in, like, Africa, and, like, Robert Fraser's the villain. And then the thing he was in after that was a a serial about, like, biplane pilots in World War One or something. So his agent is not doing a very good job. Yeah, his I feel like his career is in a in a downslope in this period. Which sucks. Yeah, I wish we could have gotten a little bit more out of what Dr. Neiman's goals and motivations were, because again I feel like that's a section where the movie is using cliche to kind of fill in story. Like he gets the standard mad scientist speech about like Oh, I'm doing things no human's ever done. I'm I'm piercing the veil of the unknown, and who cares if a few people get killed along the way or whatever. But that doesn't really, like, give him really an explanation of his actions. It's just cut and paste from, like, Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, and this artificial life form is, you know, somehow it's so important that it had to be fed the blood of ten people. And like I said, it looks to me like a breathing piece of sponge in a water aquarium. I think it is a cool effect. I'm just saying that for it to be the centerpiece of this whole plot, it's a little underwhelming. That's all. Okay. You know, like it's it's neat, but like, is it the blood of ten people must be sacrificed to the sponge <laughs> neat? Fay Ray has entirely too little to do in this movie. As usual, though, she does what she can with the role, and she fills it out. Oh, for sure. Like, she's sweet as Melvin Douglas's love interest, and we like her. The thing that frustrated me, though, was, like, her role in this movie is she is Neiman's lab assistant. Mm -hmm. So I was really hoping that that would give her some sort of insight into what he was doing or some sort of role in defeating him towards the end of the movie. You know, I'm not expecting a movie from 1933 to have, like, a strong female protagonist, But, like, I do expect a little bit more because it's a pre-code film. And, you know, the way she was set up in the plot made me really hope for that. And she didn't get that. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Maude Ebern gets entirely too much to do in this movie. Yes, she comes into and out of scenes with these gags about her hypochondria. And she does get involved in the plot in some points. Um, She is part of the reason why they're able to find Herman at certain points and so on. But, like, there's also points in the movie where we just cut from the plot to, like, her in her bedroom, like, figuring out which of, like, a million different medications she wants to take tonight. And then, like, making herself some, like, bicarbonate soda and then spilling it everywhere and, like, ooh, what a goof. And then cutting away. Scenes that have nothing in them other than just, she's a hypochondriac, that's the gag. 
these moments with her mm. were coming directly after some of the more terrifying moments of mm. the film. And so it definitely feels like a case of humor to distract you from the horror. Yeah, I think it says something that the movies that we've seen and praised on the list for really committing to that horrific tone have actually fared poorly at the box office and with critics. Mm -hmm. You know, we've talked about the failures of Freaks or even Island of Lost Souls and this pushback against them. Meanwhile, you know, movies like this that have a lot of comic relief, that give a lot of pause and running time between the actual horror scenes so that you can catch your breath, these seem to be doing better. And so, as much as I don't like them, you can't really fault these half-hearted efforts when they seem to be more readily accepted by the public. Definitely. I think it's a matter of, like, a bit of how the horror genre has been developing, but also, like, films are made to make money, especially this film. Yeah. So it makes a lot of sense that it is doing what it can to make money, you know? Yeah, exactly. It, it makes sense the way it's kind of playing its bases here. And, you know, as much as we as modern viewers, like, we're kind of... I find, like, my attitude is, get on with it. But clearly this is more in line with what the audiences of the time wanted than the more intense stuff that we've been enjoying more. I think there are some really neat ideas at play in The Vampire Bat. Yes. Um, I just find that the movie is mostly content to rely on cliche to fill in its runtime or comic relief to fill in its runtime. It feels like the actual horrific elements are kind of kept to a minimum, but it is much better than the monster walks. Um, <laughs> yes. And better cinematography, too. Like, there's some moving camera, there's some neat editing. Like, there's a lot of moving camera. Yeah. Like, none when it's, like, dialogue heavy, mm -hmm. but we get these neat crane shots from, like, ceiling to the street and back again. And the one shot that is probably the most memorable from this film is when um, the first victim of the vampire that we see in the film, mm -hmm. Martha, she is lying in bed and the camera moves along the floor and up to her and she reacts just as the camera comes in and the vampire bat wings, so to speak, kind of fall on her mm -hmm. and, and engulf her in darkness. So I think that's probably the most memorable thing of this Yeah, film. that was a really good shot. And I I think there must have been something where, you know, Strayer had maybe a little bit more time or a little bit more money to kind of have a little bit more style than what we saw in Monster Walks. Yes. You also said that he's directed a few films between the two, right? Yeah, like nine. So more than a few. So he's had time to kind of develop how to incorporate style into a film because Monster Walks doesn't really have a style. Well, I think the other thing, too, is maybe developing more of a comfortable working environment with sound equipment too, mm. would be a big thing, right? Because one of the reasons for those earlier films, you know, avoiding moving camera and being so stylish was because they were so afraid of what they could and couldn't do with the sound equipment. Yeah, that's true. So for a movie called The Vampire Bat, this movie never explains where any of the fucking bats came from. We get these shots of, like, rows of bats hanging around on the trees, and everyone's freaked out because of these bats happening at the same time as these murders, and they suspect it's Herman because he's making friends with these bats. And then at the end of the day, the answer to the mystery has nothing to do with the bats. So what the hell are all these bats doing in this village in Germany? Bats live in Germany, so... I guess. It just feels like a thing <laughs> that, like, a lot of attention is given to at the start, and then just 
is completely forgotten. Like, they're probably migrating and stopped <laughs> at this town halfway through. Because, like, so in some book they mention, it, like, in the movie, they mention that, like, this happened before, like, a hundred years before. Right, right. And it's like, pets just do things. Like, leave them be. Like... <laughs> So, uh, are we good to rank this guy? Yes. Okay. Uh, where are you looking to put the vampire bat? We, <laughs> I forget if we've, t- if we've talked about this on the show or not, but we kind of joke how the halfway point with the list is the mummy on the top side of the list and Genuina on the bottom half of the list. Yeah, if you're better than the mummy, you're a good movie, and if you're worse than Genuina, you're a bad movie. Yeah. So I think this kind of fits right... Above the mummy. Okay. Um, so when I first started thinking about this, I looked at where the monster walks is, which mm-hmm. is number 35, and I was like, no, I feel like this goes higher. So then I thought, okay, I'll look at where Dr. X is, because it's like pretty much the same cast. Right. And I was like, okay, Dr. X is better. Dr. <laughs> X is at 19. Right. So then I was like thinking about Murders in the Room Morgue, which is right below Dr. X, and I was like, yeah... I feel like this could go below that, but then the, there's The Mummy, which The Mummy ranked so low because it didn't have a lot of bite, and this movie, I felt like with what they were trying to do with the paranoia of the villagers and kind of turning that trope on its head, some of the spooks it had with like that moving camera up to Martha, the fact that it ends in a murder-suicide, <laughs> I felt like it had a bit more bite than The Mummy. Where I was looking to put this movie... Uh, my ceiling was The Mummy. I did not think this was better than The <laughs> Mummy. And I actually, my range was 22 to 27, which is basically between The Mummy and The Sealed Room. Uh, I thought this was definitely better than The Sealed Room, not maybe as good as The Mummy. But where I actually was kind of wanting to put this, to be honest, you know, we talked about the way the list divides. I wanted to put this below The Mummy, but above Genuina. Um, that was kind of my gut reaction. I get what you're saying about the interesting things this movie's doing, and I do agree that it's doing interesting things. I just don't think it's doing those interesting things very well. Okay. Like, you talk about the movie ends with a murder-suicide. Yes. And then immediately undercuts that by cutting directly into a gag about an old woman having diarrhea. So it's like, a lot of times we're just immediately undercutting what we're doing with comedy. The Mummy didn't undercut what it was doing with comedy. We didn't like The Mummy because it was just a movie we had already seen wearing Egyptian cosplay. (laughs) But I think that a lot of the filmmaking in The Mummy is more competent than what we're seeing here. And I think that the narrative structure of The Mummy is better than what we're seeing here. You talk about how much you like the way this movie approaches the paranoia of the village. So do I. But that ultimately isn't the point of this movie. This movie doesn't do enough to chastise the villagers about their paranoia. It's just, oops, we got the wrong guy. Well, I guess we'll give him a funeral. And then that's the last we see of those characters. They don't really get a comeuppance in any sense for what they've done. It's just, oops-a-daisies. You know, I talk about Ruth being a damsel in distress, and we give Fay Ray a lot of props for being good at, at being a damsel in distress. But, like, on the page... Helen Grovner, a.k.a. Anxanamen from The Mummy, is much more integrated into the story as a damsel in distress than Ruth. You could cut Ruth out of this story 100% and lose nothing because you'd still have the ending where Emil and Carl come back to the lab and he turns the tables and wins the day. So ultimately, 
Like, I think the Vampire Bat is worth a look for fans of this era of horror, just for the way that it plays these tropes a little differently. But I don't think it adds up to being as good a movie as The Mummy, even if The Mummy is just, you know, playing the hits, as it were. <laughs> you know what I mean? So why did you feel it deserved to go above Genuina? Ultimately, like, even though the movie doesn't do enough with them, the interesting things that the vampire bat does do are more interesting to me than Genuina. The, the, the fact that the vampire bat is about, you know, the paranoia of the village or also about, like, this kind of scientist playing all of these people so that he can keep murdering, you know, in safety. And, uh, you know, the performances and stuff, the filmmaking, ultimately was better for me than Genuina, which was just like, hey, aren't sexually independent women terrifying? <laughs> so Genuina and Vampire Bat are both trying to cash in on a certain trend. Very true. Right? Yes. And the Vampire Bat tries to cash in while also playing with what's in the sandbox, whereas mm -hmm. is just kind of like, yes, this is sand. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like, Vampire Bat is using all the pieces of these standard universal-style horror movies of this era, but it is remixing them a little bit into something new. It's not 100% successful at it, but it, you got to give it points. And I think you're totally right that Genuina doesn't do that remixing. It's just, hey, did you like Caligari? Here's more of that, but now there's a sexy lady in it. Yeah. Cool. I'm happy to put this below the mummy and above Genuina. All right. Then entering the list at number 22 is The Vampire Bat from 1933, directed by Frank R. Strayer. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you will see a list of where all of these other movies rank, as well as links to go and listen to the episode and hear how they fared during the ranking process. On our website, there is a box where you can suggest or appeal where we've ranked things. If Tumblr isn't your bag, you can send us an email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene comes out every Wednesday. We are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. I think they're calling it Apple Podcast now. I think they've changed the name. Oh. Regardless, the way that you get podcasts on your iPhone, we, we're on that. Yeah. Um, that and SoundCloud. Um, also, if you're listening to us and you're in the United States, you know, do what you can to support the fight for net neutrality because maybe your service provider won't let you access SoundCloud after the FCC destroys net neutrality, and I'd still like you to be able to hear the show. So do what you can to, uh, to try and uh, fight for a free internet. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, uh, appropriately enough, we are watching the movie that this movie was designed to rip off, which is Mystery of the Wax Museum, starring Lionel Atwill and Faye Ray from Warner Brothers in Two-Tone Technicolor, directed by Michael Curtiz. So we've seen this movie before. Mm -hmm. It's set on New Year's Eve. Is it? Yep. Okay. And we'll be watching it on December Eve. Sure. Yes. True. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, creatures of the night, we will see you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.